Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Chronically Mom podcast. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome. If not, welcome back. I am your host, Michelle Pickens. I am a mom of two out here sharing my journey of motherhood while living with Crohn's disease. I use this podcast and my blog, Chronically Blonde, to have important conversations relating to the IBD community, mental health, motherhood, things like that. So you can check out my website, chronicallyblonde.com, or follow along on Instagram at chronicallyblonde if you are interested in seeing some of that day-to-day action, or you can visit back at the podcast every week for a new episode about one of the topics I mentioned. Uh, Sometimes we have a little bit more lighter conversations, and sometimes it's some more heavy-hitting interviews. So you get a, a nice little mix here. This week, we are going to elaborate on the topic of medical cannabis. So we dove into this topic a few episodes ago. We got to hear from the cannabis industry, manufacturer side of things, which was very helpful. Uh, I wanted to get the perspective of a medical provider as well, though. Um, So Dr. Jamie Kanukin, she was my mentor for the American Gastro Association Patient Influencer Program. And through that and through working with her, I learned about the work that she's doing within the IBD and medical cannabis research uh, area. She so kindly has, has agreed to chat with me. She shares some of her insights into using cannabis for IBD. Uh, we chat a lot about what the research is telling us so far, so really what we do know. And then one of the big things that she touched on is why it is so important to let your provider know if you are using cannabis. So I know that can be a touchy subject, but she reassured me and reassured us all if you are trying it or interested in trying it, you can be open and should be open with your provider. Okay, so before we dive in, I want to give you a little bit more background information on Dr. Kanukin. She is an inflammatory bowel disease specialist and senior associate consultant in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. She currently serves as the clinical practice chair for the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology and co-director for Digital Health and Practice Integration for the Department of Medicine. She's been recognized as a fellow of the American College of Gastroenterology and the American Gastroenterological Association. She is involved with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. She's co-chair for Women in IBD Task Force with them. And most recently, she uh, founded the Florida Women in GI Group. She co-authored the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation white paper, The Role of Cannabis in the Management of Inflammatory Bowel Disease, a review of clinical, scientific, and regulatory regulatory information and is actively involved in research looking at cannabis use and outcomes in patients with IBD. So without further ado, here is Dr. Kanukin. I am so excited for you guys to hear this conversation. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I am so excited to chat with you about um, medical cannabis and specifically around um, IBD. Thanks, Michelle. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, I appreciate that you're raising some awareness around this incredibly important disease state, but also um, a topic that many patients maybe don't feel so comfortable talking about when they're with their providers. So I'm excited to be here and, and have a very open dialogue with you today. Yes, definitely. So to get started, um, what in the medical community is the general consensus? 
consensus on medical cannabis usage specifically for IBD? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's hard to gauge sort of the general medical community and more of where I think I have a better understanding is around sort of the gastroenterology community and and um, IBD specialist community. Um, I think that, you know, of course, any illegal substance uh, carries some stigma and we have to just kind of call out the elephant in the room, which is that cannabis um, is still considered a federally illegal substance, no matter what the state-based laws are. And, and there's still several states that are hanging on to fully illegal status and they haven't recognized it either in medicinal or recreational ways. Um, you know, I, I like to think myself, um, I'm, I'm probably the most open person I know in terms of having the conversation, because I think it's really important that that door remains open between a patient and a provider. Um, but I, you know, one of my focuses and my goals has been to educate not only the patient community, but to educate the provider community so they can have these conversations um, that, you know, sometimes are a little bit more challenging to have so that the door is open for patients to share that information. Um, I think that, uh, you know, as people learn more about cannabis, cannabinoids and where they act in the body, and they understand a little bit more of the science about why patients may experience both positive and negative effects of cannabis, um, I think that the healthcare community and providers in general are more open to starting the conversations. Um, but, you know, of course, I think that there is still a stigma that surrounds the use of, of controlled substances. And, and at this, you know, state in July, at the last day of June in 2023, it still has a federally illegal status. Right, right. Can you explain a bit about the science behind how cannabis impacts the body and impacts the mind? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, I think when people think of cannabis, they they think of it as this natural substance. It's, you know, it's either available through a state. I was just in Michigan and it's recreationally available there. I live in the state of Florida where it's not recreational available and uh, patients require uh, certification to be able to access it, you know, legally um, through the state of Florida. But what people don't think about is, you know, cannabis itself is really made up of hundreds of phytocannabinoids. So these are the plant-based substances that make up cannabis. Two of the most commonly known, understood, studied cannabinoids are delta-9 tetrahydrocannabidiol, which in the in short is THC, uh, what maybe your, your listeners know as THC, and then cannabidiol, which is CBD. And of course, not all cannabis is created equal. There are uh, various different strains. Um, the most There's two more common strains, cannabis sativa and cam cannabis indica, but there's also some, some other strains that are typically crossbred with these to maybe make them uh, higher, higher flowering type uh, plants get more productivity out of the strains. Um, but they have varying levels of THC, varying levels of CBD. Um, you know, patients may be able to walk into their um, uh, grocery store, their Walgreens, their um, uh, gas station and pick up on the end of the aisle some CBD related product. That typically has little to no THC. Um, anything that's um, uh, less than 0.3% THC is considered hemp, which um, the Farm Bill had made legal in many states, although some states have, have tried to pass laws to make it illegal, but had made hemp, which is predominantly CBD, um, a legalized substance. So you can get that kind of anywhere. You can see hemp oil anywhere. Um, but, you know, THC, CBD, what we 
think of sort of as cannabis, what patients think of as cannabis is usually a blend of, of those two, depending on the percentages. Um, the other challenges is that some people can use it in an inhalation route, some people can use it in an oral formulation. And so the impacts that it has on the body through the endocannabinoid system can be very greatly based on the percentage of THC that's present, um, potentially the strain that's used, how patients are using it and taking it. Um, and so that is really you know, where we see those downstream effects. But the endocannabinoid system was discovered in 1992. So not that long ago, um, where they understood where these substances were acting in the body and the science behind it. And so there are two main um, endocannabinoid receptors. Um, there are many, but the two main ones that we, we speak of are cannabinoid receptor one and cannabinoid receptor two, which um, is doesn't sound very fancy. They just labeled them by the time that they were they were found. But um, really, we can see that um, cannabinoid receptor one is is more predominantly located in the central nervous system as well as the enteric nervous system, which is the nervous system of the gut. And so you can imagine when you have substances and THC has a higher binding affinity. It's not the only thing that binds there, but it has a higher binding affinity for this receptor where we can see those more central mediated effects that patients feel like um, this euphoric feeling when patients use cannabis, uh, potentially psychoses in, in a negative way. Um, but you can also see pain reduction uh, as well as the way that it acts within the gut. In fact, the, the gut is a very high concentration of the endocannabinoid receptors, and many of those are being the, the cannabinoid receptor two, and that's where we can see a higher binding affinity of uh, 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 CBD. And so uh, we know that when CBD is combined with THC, it seems to bind to that receptor a little bit better. And so we may see, and, and we'll talk probably later about some of the data as to why when they've studied THC alone and CBD alone, we're not seeing maybe the benefits that patients may be seeing sort of when they're using a combination of the two, um, you know, uh, either medicinally or recreationally at home. But um, it's the, the CB2 receptors that are more commonly located on immune-mediated cells, the gut being a highly immune organ, why we're here today, Crohn's and colitis. But the, um, that, immune, that immune potential is where I think that the, the science and the patient population are really very excited about how can we manipulate this system in the body um, using substances like cannabis so that we can get those impacts that we're hoping for, which is reduced inflammation. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the science. Unfortunately, we're not there yet, but I, I think that it's opening the door and the opportunity in the discussion um, for us to decide how do we best target this system in the body that we know about that is very much interacts with what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, the more you exercise, the more endocannabinoids, so things that your own body makes that bind those receptors, those increase. Um, and that can uh, have a significant impact on your inflammatory cells too. So it, it's all intertwined, um, but it's not as simple as just going out there and getting cannabis and smoking cannabis. I, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah, thank you so much for that explanation. That was, that was great. Um, and I, I definitely do wanna get into the science behind it because I think that's part of the issue around the stigma and the reluctance maybe to speak to your medical provider about it because there isn't a ton of credible information that's widely accessible out there. And especially what you said around um, the studies that we do have, they don't necessarily show or reflect the experiences that patients are having. So what does the science say? What studies have been done? What is widely recognized um, as the, I guess, findings on THC and CBD? 
Yeah, and I and I speak on this both regionally and nationally to providers, to patients, to to help us kind of at least all be on the same page, right? What what do we know? Which is a lot less than what we don't know. Okay, so I'll preface it with that. The challenge is, is that when you have a substance that's federally illegal, it's really challenging. It's not impossible, but it's very challenging to study that in a meaningful way in the United States. So there are no randomized controlled trials that have been done in the US because of this federal legal status. So much of the data that exists, exists outside of the US. And actually there's, um, uh, Dr. Naftali is the main researcher out of Israel who has done a lot of the work in this area. And, and again, based on animal studies that have looked at when you manipulate these receptors, which is not what we're doing in humans, but when you truly block these receptors or manipulate these receptors, we do see this benefit in from an inflammation standpoint in a mouse model. You know, we know that we don't base our treatments of patients based just on mice. We actually have to do human-based studies. So in the human-based studies that have been done, think about this, when a study is done for a medication, so let's just say one of the biologics, usually in the clinical trial programs, there are thousands of patients, anywhere from, you know, a thousand to two thousand patients that are enrolled in these clinical trial programs. To date, there's been five randomized studies that have looked at various forms, so it's not all the same, but of various forms of a cannabinoid, whether it's THC alone, CBD alone, or some combination in different formulations, whether it's smoked or oral, and in different doses. So it's like there, it's literally like trying to compare five different types of apples, right? There, you know, there are very differences amongst those apples. But there's only been 146 participants in these randomized controls trials. So think about that. Think about how we're trying to base this science. A patient will come in showing me a paper that I, I, I clearly know, but it's based on a very small number um, of participants. Now, there's been larger number of participants in non-randomized studies. Um, the challenge with cannabis in general is that it's hard to placebo control a trial with cannabis. Any any um, any form of cannabis that has THC will potentially have very noticeable effects for a patient that could be altering their, um, their, their sensories, providing that sort of psychosis or euphoria that patients describe when they use it. So you can imagine that if you're in the clinical trial and you're in the treatment arm versus the placebo arm, while you might be taking something or smoking something and thinking you're using it, if you are not cannabis naive, you probably know that you may not be using it. So you know, it, it adds a little bit of a layer of complexity to these studies. But the one thing that was that was clear, even though we have this sort of potential bias of not truly being able to randomize, patients who were in the cannabinoid arms felt better overall. We saw that despite the fact that they're really hard to compare these things across, you know, uh, across the studies because there were different formulations, patients in general felt better when they were using these cannabinoid-based products. They had reduced abdominal pain, diarrhea, nausea, they had their appetite improve. Overall, in the studies, when they looked at um, questionnaires, patients felt like they're, they had overall global improvement in their quality of life. So that, you know, that speaks to some of the benefit. Now, what speaks to some of the concerns is that we didn't see the changes that we anticipated from the mouse studies in these clinical studies. So we didn't see changes in lab testing. So your listeners, you know, should be under the care of a, you know, a healthcare provider managing their Crohn's or their colitis. They should be monitoring blood work on you at least, you know, once every six months, if not annually. Um, think, looking at things like C-reactive protein, stool studies for fecal calprotectin, um, and and then looking at your hemoglobin, making sure you're not anemic. 
in the studies, these things didn't change. Baseline, you know, elevated inflammatory markers remained elevated despite the fact that these patients felt better. Um, and so what it suggested is that, you know, these studies mostly were done over an eight week period. So patients felt better. Maybe it wasn't enough time to see improvement in inflammation. Maybe if we watched them further, we could see that. Um, but we also didn't see that significant change in their inflammation. All of these patients stayed on their medical therapy during these studies. So when patients come in hoping to use cannabis as a substitute to the FDA approved therapies, that's just not how they've been studied. And so that's really kind of, you know, not in line with any data um, to support it other than there's lots of things out there on the internet, uh, the N of one person, right? The, the person who, you know, were able to cure their disease with cannabis, you know, I would never base my future decisions based on an N of one because uh, that, that's a really challenging, um, you know, metric to meet. But, um, you know, while patients felt better, their disease and their inflammation didn't get better. But what it highlights is, is that the, the effects are real right? We know, and we know why that is. There's science behind it. The endocannabinoids live within the gut, they live within the brain, and they can help improve some of these symptoms that are either due to Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, or if patients don't have persistent inflammation, let's say we were able to use the medicine to get their disease under really good control, but what's not better is their abdominal pain. So despite the fact that they're, they're being told that their CT looks normal, their MRI looks normal, they have a normal colonoscopy, they're still struggling every day with pain. And so um, that's where if patients are looking to um, uh, seek out cannabis as, a, as a, an adjuvant therapy to use in addition to their medicines, this is maybe where there might be more of a role for cannabinoids in, in IBD patients. Um, but most patients, when they come to see me um, and, and they do come in asking and talking about this, maybe because I've done a couple podcasts, maybe because if you Google my name and then cannabis, it, it seems to be top thing with IBD, uh, but they come in and I think that they have an expectation that, that I'm going to tell them that they can stop their medication and that we can use cannabis to treat their disease. And um, we have an, a lovely conversation about the same way we are about what we know and what we, we don't know and maybe where there's more work that we need to do. That's very interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I think it's helpful to know that you can't just replace your, your FDA approved therapies that you're doing, because I, I do hear that a lot, or people saying that they're looking for a natural solution. Um, and to kind of piggyback off of that, I feel like a lot of the times people think, oh, it's a natural solution. So there's no risks associated with it. So I want to get into a little bit about the risks and what you need to be aware of if you are dabbling or starting to use medical cannabis for your symptom control? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously the greatest, um, the greatest risk to any treatment, whether it's a prescribed treatment or a non-prescribed treatment, is the treatment that's not working for the desired effect. So if patients are using cannabis to treat their Crohn's disease in the absence of any other medical therapy, and it's making them feel good, but they're not under the care of a healthcare professional, they're not checking in with their Crohn's, there have been some larger studies that have shown worse outcomes in those patients. Um, there's a study that was out of Canada that showed that patients using cannabis were more likely to need surgery. Now the challenge when we use big data sets, when we look at big population-based data, it's hard to control for those little things. Were, were those patients using cannabis because their disease was more severe? 
we're, you know, we, and we can't control for that. So is it a possible confounding uh, variable? Potentially, um, but we know that there are negative impacts of cannabis use. One of the other studies that really highlights when I think about it, and I always talk about my to my patients, is that patients who are using cannabis were more likely, significantly more likely to stop their medical therapies. Wow. And so I think is where the greatest risk, right, greatest risk lies is in the fact that that therapy, whatever it was, may have been treating your Crohn's, it wasn't doing enough for your nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, which was not due to untreated Crohn's, but maybe due to the sort of aftermath of Crohn's, sort of the, the damage that Crohn's left in its wake. Maybe you have a stricture. And if you're not under the care of a medical professional, if you're not having these really important conversations, you know, you come into my clinic and, and I say, how are you feeling? And you say, I'm feeling great. I, I can eat what I want. I'm doing great. I haven't lost weight. I'm no nausea, no vomiting, no diarrhea. But you're using cannabis three times a day and you haven't told me that. Well, you know, I'm glad you're doing well. I'm glad you're feeling well. But I need to understand why are you having all those symptoms that you're needing to use cannabis to treat? Is it because you have a stricture? Is it because your Crohn's disease is undertreated? Um, is it because you actually have a, an abscess or a fistula and it, that the cannabis is really effective to, to mask those symptoms? But we really need to be checking in with the disease to ensure that we're not missing progression of disease or active inflammation that needs better optimization of your, of your underlying medical therapy. So, so risk for surgery, risk for discontinuing medications, risk for masking active inflammatory symptoms. If you're not under, you know, a really close monitoring strategy, at least annually, um, with a healthcare healthcare provider. Um, but then there's other things that I think that we need to think about when we think about substances, whether they're quote natural, because many of the things that we give patients are they came from a natural origin. A lot of antibiotics are quote, natural, um, but we know that those come with some risk for, for patients. Um, it still remains federally illegal. So um, there might be implications related to work. There might be implications related to travel. So if this is a part of your day-to-day -day life and you travel between states and those states all don't have the same cannabis laws, um, you are placing yourself potentially at risk for, for persecution related to this illegal substance. Um, it could exacerbate underlying depression and anxiety, which we know our patients struggle with already. Um, and so uh, that's something that I always counsel patients on who are interested in, in starting this as an adjuvant therapy. There have been studies in the general population showing an increased risk for motor vehicle accident, accidents, as well as overall decreased life achievement with chronic users, especially younger individuals um, who, who start using cannabis early. Um, I think the most important thing for me as a healthcare provider is the drug interactions that exist. And, and they, um, cannabis is metabolized in the liver, similar to many of the other medications that you might receive. Um, some important ones are medications we give at, rarely in IBD, but most in transplant settings, um, like tacrolimus, um, a blood thinner that, that some patients are on called Coumadin. It e either can make those medicines um, toxic or it can actually make them less effective. And so we certainly, as a healthcare provider, would want to know if you're taking a substance that can interact with any medicines that I might give you. Um, and then, you know, I think the side effects are really dependent on the formulation and the dose that patients use, but um, it's not uncommon for patients to experience psychoses, especially with higher doses of TH THC. Um, increase in heart rate of, and described fertility-related changes for both men and women. 
increase in nausea and vomiting. In fact, um, I care for many patients that have developed cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, which is a very real um, uh, uh, clinical syndrome that results in pretty pronounced nausea and vomiting, even sometimes requiring hospitalization. Um, there's been studies that have looked at lung function changes, sleep changes, sleep disturbances, even though patients are using it for improved sleep quality prolonged use can actually lead to a withdrawal effect and actually result in worse sleep quality. Dizziness, headache, you know, I mean, it's it's similar things that are very well labeled on drug labels that have been approved by the FDA. The challenge is, is this doesn't come with a nice drug label, right? And and so it's, um, I guess, use, use at your own discretion. Um, and, it, and it's really dependent on each individual, how they experience it. Well, I guess it's hard to compare just because it's not in the same bucket, but is, is there a way to compare the safety of medical cannabis for symptom control? Um, let's say for chronic pain, for example, compared to the use of an opioid. Um, that's a, a big thing that I've heard a lot of people saying, Hey, I, I have, you know, abdominal pain or I have this chronic pain and I'm prescribed an opioid. They don't want to be on an opioid. So they're looking to medical cannabis, but what, what are the safety, what's the safety comparison? Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard. I, I think that there are um, very clear situations where um, opioid pain medications are indicated, right? Post-operative states, um, uh, patients with severe perianal disease acutely. Really, opioids are, are never meant to be used as a long-term strategy for pain control. I think, um, and my uh, one of my fellows and I wrote a, um, a paper that is available um, looking at pain management in IBD patients. It's through um, the AGA organization. But what we really highlighted is that, you know, there's not enough attention given to both acute and chronic pain. Um, there are lots of other alternative therapies outside of opioids. Opioids are meant to be a short-term strategy, um, fix the underlying um, cause that's resulting in the need for such high level of pain control, um, and uh, and then you know move on to something else. So uh, oftentimes in our patients, we think if patients are having enough pain that they have inflammation, we need to use better anti-inflammatories than we need to be using you know opioids. Opioids are a band-aid, right? They're not actually treating the underlying problem. And in fact, opioids have been in IBD patients associated with the worst outcomes, um, increased risk for hospitalization, increased risk for need for surgery. Um, you know, I, I think that, that that's just a few of the things, but um, I, I preferentially talk to patients about alternative pain strategies. We did a study actually looking at a New York dispensary. We're writing this up for publication right now. So we took patients who were going for medicinal use with Crohn's and colitis to a New York dispensary. And we actually found that patients through the dispensary program, these are patients that enrolled through um, a medical dispensary, over the course of their time with this dispensary, they were able to reduce, if they were on opioids, they were able to reduce their opioid prescriptions um, with the use of cannabis. Wow. So that's not necessarily a comment one is safer than the other, because um, I, th I think that they both have individual risk in different ways. But certainly, um, I think that um, for long-term use, cannabis might uh, might be a have a more favorable safety profile um, than than an opioid therapy. Um, and at least we were able to show reduction in narcotic uh, requirements in IBD patients that were enrolled in a medicinal dispensary program. So I definitely see that that's a that's added value um, of that. But I think the most important thing that patients need to recognize when they have pain is we need to understand the why. Right. We don't want to just throw throw a treatment at it. We need to understand why do you have pain? 
Do you have a stricture? Do you have a fistula? Do you have active inflammation? Um, do you have visceral hypersensitivity, which is essentially that your nervous system and your gut is just on fire and it is sending way too many signals to your brain. Um, and, and there are lots of medications that we can consider using that can help help with any of those um, potential situations that don't mask or, or just treat the pain aspect to it. Um, pain is important. Pain is important that we recognize that, but we also need to recognize what are the risks, some of the things that we, we see patients come in off of um, from the emergency room. Most common place that a patient with IBD will get introduced to narcotics. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's not the right approach. Uh, I think we need to be a little bit more thoughtful when we're seeing patients that have acute pain, right? Something, something has changed. And then we really certainly need to be more, more cognizant when patients have chronic pain and how that is impacting their quality of life and what better strategies do we have outside of opioids. Great. Um, so I want to get into a bit about starting that conversation with your doctor. You're very knowledgeable about this topic, obviously, but I know that not all providers are as passionate about this and as informed. So say you have a provider that isn't as educated about cannabis and you're looking to potentially learn more about it. How do you, how do you broach that topic? Yeah, I think um, I think presume that most healthcare professionals are very open to these discussions, and that I think some of it is the the sort of social stigmatization of cannabis that's maybe bleeding into the way that patients feel like their provider may feel about it. Um, and so I I think leave that at the door, try to have that open conversation. Um, sometimes, you know, and I think might be helpful is if a patient anticipates if that's a really main focus of what they'd like to talk about, don't have it be the out the door question, right? Is, oh, wait a minute, Dr. Kanukian, what do you think about cannabis, right? Because that's, that doesn't, that doesn't place that really important discussion that you want to have at the forefront of that visit. Um, I often ask with my patients um, when we sit down is I'll, well, you know, hellos, and then say, you know, what are some top top three goals you want to, to accomplish in your visit today? Set the stage for them to kind of get out of the things that might be, you know, um, either they didn't think about it or they want to make sure they really get to them. Um, but I think that assume that your provider is, is open to the discussion. Know that your provider probably doesn't have the level of knowledge that maybe somebody like I, I do about uh, cannabis in general, as well as the really high level detail of the, the data that exists. Um, but one thing is you can maybe message your provider before your visit. You know, I've been reading a lot about, I heard this podcast about, I'd be interested in having a conversation with you about whether or not cannabis might be um, an opportunity in my treatment plan. Right, that opens that sort of broad discussion, and maybe that gives that provider who's maybe not as knowledgeable an opportunity to, um, you know, listen to a podcast, to go and look at some of the primary literature themselves. Um, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation has an excellent resource for providers as well as patients. We wrote a white paper, um, which really was like a call to action. We need to understand this further. Patients want to know about it. There's not a lot of data out there, so I think that that, um, you know, is an opportunity for that provider to not be caught off guard right, where they may not know anything. They may be very not knowledgeable um, about it. They may have their own biases recreationally, but they may actually be very open to it medicinally. You know, you don't know until you to at least start that conversation. But I think that, um, you know, so setting yourself up for success, bringing it up 
if that's an important topic you want to discuss um, up front. Um, I think it's important to understand why you want to use it. Um, so I'll have patients that come in that just want to use it recreationally and want to understand if it's going to benefit them. And that's a different conversation than someone saying, um, I heard this can cure my Crohn's. What are your thoughts? Because then it gives me an opportunity to educate them specific to that. So why do you want to have that conversation? What are you know what are you looking to gain? Oftentimes it's you know I, I feel like my drug is working my whatever um, let's say it's biologic, but I still am having issues with diarrhea. That allows me to have a broader discussion, not just about cannabis. Cannabis is what they're hoping maybe they can add to their their treatment plan, but talking about all the other potential causes to diarrhea that may actually not benefit from cannabis, right? And so I, I think that just having that open discussion, um, maybe if you felt like your provider, you've tried to talk to your provider in the past and they were either not open or seem uninformed, um, you could bring the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation website um, or white paper to that visit. Hey, I'd love to maybe that our next visit together, talk a little bit more about this. Um, the one thing about healthcare providers, at least majority of them, is we are always willing to learn. So I have patients that bring me things that um, I haven't seen before. Um, that know that uh, cannabis is is published in very non-scientific areas, um, and so I am often uh, um, I often get the opportunity to read what some patients have, have found in different areas, um, and it helps you know keep me informed, but it also gives me an opportunity to educate why that may not be good science and why that study was, you know, maybe maybe not as, um, as scientifically valid as some of the other studies uh, that have been done in this similar space. Um, so I think presume that your, your provider is open to having a evidence-based discussion about something that's obviously very important to you. And so if your provider is not open to discussing things that are important to you, then you might need to um, consider alternative arrangements for your healthcare. Right. That's very, very helpful to know how open healthcare providers are, because I think so many times, and as a patient, when you go into an appointment, you, you think, you know, oh, they just want to kind of get in and out and on to the next patient, but knowing how, how dedicated you are really to helping the patient reach their goals, looking at new alternatives, things like that. That's, that's a really positive, um, positive sentiment there. Um, so do you think that as legislation continues to pass in different states and legalization from either a medical perspective or a recreational perspective becomes uh, more commonplace, will there be more studies and more uh, I guess, accurate studies that the medical community will be able to rely on? Yeah, I think, well, of course, if uh, federally it becomes legalized, which, um, you know, I think we've seen incredible growth in, in legalization across um, the last 10 years amongst states. Um, I think federally it's gonna, it's still gonna lag. But as we have, um, if, if it becomes federally legal, I think it's going to be um, significantly easier to study. Um, I think that when it's federally illegal, patients are more likely to disclose. So patients probably don't disclose, at least this has been, been looked at because of that still illegal status. They don't want that a part of their medical record, knowing that that is still, you know, part of their very uh, protected information. Um, they feel that, you know, that being in there may, may potentially have an impact on, on them in some way. Um, they also may, you know, 
buy into the stigma of it's federally illegal, so I, I don't want to talk about using an illegal substance to my provider. So I think that, that will increase the amount of disclosure, which means that the studies that we do have right now rely on disclosure. Um, we've just recently um, are publishing a study that looked at patients who disclose that they use cannabis require much higher levels of sedation for colonoscopy. That's something that's really important to know, but yeah. not every patient uses that at the time of their colonoscopy. So um, things like that. So I think they're more likely to disclose, which means that some of the studies might be more valid because we actually are getting more percentage than are, are using cannabinoids that are disclosing and truthful uh, to that question. Um, I think that it'll allow us potentially to, to study it in a more meaningful way in randomized studies. But really, if I were to kind of throw a wrench in that, I, I think that where much of the benefit is going to be seen, and there's been some studies looking at cannabinoid receptor um, uh, related, you know, um, agonists. So essentially using chemically made molecules to target these receptors. If we recognize the endocannabinoid receptor as a very important, or endocannabinoid system as being a very important system um, in the body uh, related to many different things, but um, potentially it's immune potential. I think really where the money's going to be is in targeting these receptors in a more meaningful way than the sort of, sort of varied, varied doses of either oral or inhaled or potential topical therapies that have THC and CBD, which do bind to these receptors, but not with the level of affinity of binding that we might see from a very targeted molecule. They have looked at some of these in both IBS and IBD. Um, I think that there's some, some kinks to work out. Um, uh, know that the receptors were, were um, you know, activated. However, the challenge is, is that there are significant side effect profiles of, of some of these in some phase two studies. And so there's, I think there's some work to do, but that's where I really see the growth of this is being able to truly appreciate how the endocannabinoid system is intertwined with the immune system and how it impact on immune conditions like um, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis um, and targeting those receptors in a, in a more meaningful way than, than we think that cannabis can. Um, so that's where I really, really see some of the science driving change in this area. Um, it takes time. Um, cannabis is relatively cheap, right? And so, um, and, and easy to study when you ask patients questions because it doesn't require large clinical studies to be able to, to get it um, get it to the end. Um, but um, I think that there's gonna be more stuff coming. We do have some uh, synthetic cannabinoids, a couple THC analogs and one CBD analog that was just approved by the FDA for a neurologic condition. Um, and most of these are um, related to um, HIV or chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting and how they've seen or entered the FDA space. Um, but we have seen that same benefit um, in um, in patients when we just use a THC component or we just use a CBD component. So there's something truly about this, um, the synergy that exists between the two of them where we might see the benefits that patients are hoping for, right? Patients wanna see improved inflammation, they wanna feel better, and they want to have control over what they're using to treat their illness. That's why complementary and alternative medicine as a field exists is that there's a, there's a lot of freedom for patients there. There's just not a lot of science yet. And so I think that that's really where the challenges are is, um, is that we have to kind of proceed with caution because mm -hmm. while one patient may have benefit, another one may have risk. And um, we like to use data to guide decisions um, as imperfect as generalized data is. Um, we want to know that something has 
clear benefit over placebo, right? And that the risk um, is, if there is risk associated with something, that it is not significantly greater than placebo and certainly not greater than the benefit. Right. I, I think that's very promising hearing that there's so many already studies that are, that are being devoted to this. And there's so much that we don't know. It's very interesting to think about all the possibilities as this continues to get researched and all of the potential treatment opportunities that could be unlocked. Um, and even just past the symptom management side of it into the inflammatory piece. Because I think that is, like you were saying before, I think that's a huge area where this could be, this could make a huge difference. Yeah, I would agree. And I think, um, I think that we're just not there yet. That's what I've told patients is that we, we, there's more that we don't know than we know. Um, and I'm not, and I certainly am not telling them that there's no science behind it. I just don't think that we've discovered the science that really supports the mo the molecule, which they're hoping to use, right? Maybe cannabis isn't the right answer. Maybe the endocannabinoid system is the target but cannabis is not the way that we're gonna unlock that. That makes sense, that makes sense. So in conclusion, I want to leave the audience with sort of those key points of why it's important that they have this conversation with their healthcare provider. We talked about them sprinkled throughout the episode, but what would you say are those top, maybe two, three reasons why you need to know as a provider if they are using medical cannabis? Yeah, I think number one is you, you need to be honest with yourself about why you're hoping to incorporate medical cannabis uh, into your regimen. What symptoms are you hoping to treat with medical cannabis? Has your inflammatory burden been assessed? Have you had up-to-date labs, stool testing, imaging, or colonoscopy? do you have persistent inflammation? And is that the cause of the symptoms that you're hoping to treat? Know that the data does not support that cannabis is gonna treat those symptoms, that we really need to optimize your medical therapy and not mask those symptoms with cannabis while we leave your inflammation still under controlled, which is where we see that potential increased risk that's associated with cannabis in the studies for complications and potential need for surgery. It's important to disclose this to your healthcare provider because they need to understand what symptoms might be masked by the use of cannabis. They need to make sure that they don't prescribe you medications that may have interaction with cannabinoids, either making those therapies potentially toxic or not having the same level of effectiveness. And so when you don't have a response to the medication that they understand what might be driving that lack of response because the medicine is being made less effective in the setting of cannabis. The other thing that's important is that cannabis, while most people tolerate it without issues, um, some people can have significant side effects from actual cannabis and they don't recognize it. It's related to the cannabis. And so um, my biggest fear is that patients don't disclose that they're using cannabis. They come into a GI clinic with nausea, vomiting um, and diarrhea and we haven't had that discussion. And now I'm ordering a gamut of tests, labs, you know, imaging studies, potentially thinking about doing another endoscopy or colonoscopy, all which have risk associated with them when they're not needed, when really this is actually just a side effect of this potential substance. So um, I think that there's many, many reasons to, to have that conversation. 
Um, if it's something that's important to you, it should be important to your provider um, to have the conversation. And, and you need to be open to the fact that they may say some of the things that I've said today, which is that the science doesn't support its use to treat Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis yet. And that while you might feel better, and, and that's good, improved quality of life is good, it's not going to replace your drug A or B, um, and, and it potentially can have some risk to it. So I think that would be my full kind of, if you only listen to the last five minutes of this podcast, that would be, that would be it. Thank you so much for those takeaways. This was incredible. You dropped so much knowledge. Um, I think this will be really helpful for IBD patients in general. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, Michelle is so great. Thank you for, for doing this, raising awareness for your podcast. Um, I'd love for your listeners to follow me on Twitter at IBDGIJamie, uh, J-A-M-I is my name. Uh, I'd love for you to follow along. Um, I do post about many things, but I, I do post some of the, the stuff that we are learning about uh, cannabis and IBD. So thank you for having me. Thank you for, for joining. All right, that's a wrap on my conversation with Dr. Kanukin. I am so, so appreciative that she took the time to chat with us. I've been re-listening to this episode, taking notes. There was just a ton of knowledge um, that she really brought to the table here. So hopefully we can have her back again to talk about some of the additional topics that I know she is also so passionate about. Um, but for now, I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I hope you stay well and I will chat with you next week.